Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. We are offering three separate conversations from last Sunday night's episode, What We Learned at Today's FDA Webcast on Nash Drug Development. In this conversation, the panel discussed key takeaways on the subject of trial design and drug development. Uh, panelists Stephen Harrison, Manal Abdul-Malik, Naeem Al-Khoury, Akira Therapeutics Chief Development Officer Kitty Yale, Louise Campbell, and I, focused on trial length for newer drugs that have produced robust efficacy responses in 12 to 16 weeks, along with intelligent approaches to incorporating separate F2, F3, and control cirrhosis trials in the same overall strategy, and practical issues in developing combination therapies versus single agents. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, patient advocate Donna Cryer, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. One thing that I thought was interesting, and maybe, Roger, we can delve into, for the first time I heard, we, we've traditionally heard from the regulatory authorities about endpoints, meaningful endpoints being resolution of NASH without worsening of fibrosis or fibrosis improvement without worsening of NASH or hitting now both dual surrogate endpoints. But in the question and answer, I heard something very intriguing that I think lends promise because as clinicians, we know that if you take a pre-serotic or serotic NASH and just keep them stable, no change, with the anticipation that 20% could potentially decompensate in two to three years, but if you keep a serotic or pre-serotic from progressing, that that is a meaningful endpoint. And for the first time, I heard the FDA say halt progression of cirrhosis or halt progression of fibrosis. And the halt to me, means no change. So is it a suitable endpoint to take a stage three and keep them at a stage three with no progression? And and the FDA has recognized progression to cirrhosis as being a clinically meaningful outcome, but even maybe the the overarching goal of complete reversal in a timeframe of 12 to 18 months is proposed in fibrosis, it may be very ambitious for fibrosis endpoints. And that halting fibrosis is the first time I've actually really heard regulatory agencies say halt, which to me resonates in stability and no change. They, they hinted around that a little bit, but I, I was intrigued with that comment of halt. Reactions, comments? No, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, they made it clear that progression to cirrhosis is a valid endpoint. I was happy also to see that they said do not mix cirrhosis with NASH and, you know, F3. As you know, previous companies tried to focus on F3, F4, and that backfired. So I think, you know, moving forward, it's nice to keep the cirrhosis trial completely separate from the F2, F3. I think they, they're very clear on this point, And I hope that for future drug development that we stick to that point. I was hoping we we will have more on portal hypertension and the hepatic vein pressure gradient and other potential surrogates. But I know this is also a sticky topic and I was maybe too optimistic. But I mean, the, the answer we got was what we all expected. There is new data on maybe MR elastography, some MRI-based uh, combination scores where you combine PDFF and MR elastography. We'll see, but this is all still premature. Yeah, I'll just carry that, that conversation a little further. So we're kind of 
moving away from Manals and following up on the Eames, but I, I want to just emphasize that we've come a long way with non-invasive testing. And I, I think we're on the precipice of having some really positive data with MRI PDFF and potentially with Pro-C3 as well. For MR elastography, I kind of had left that for dead a while back because nothing seemed to be moving the needle there. Then there was some positive data that, that began to come out and some even further data from Alina Allen at the Mayo Clinic. And that data is in cirrhotics, we are able to, the, the, the comment I was going to make about MR elastography that's novel and new is, is in the cirrhotic population following on Naeem's comment. There's a lot of momentum being built around the work that uh, Mason Noredin and Alina Allen have published looking at MRE in cirrhotics predicting outcome measures. So if we're able to generate some significant data showing that regression in MR elastography actually correlates to Manal's point with stability of cirrhosis and preventing progression. We have historical data now to show what an MRE KPA is associated with an outcome measure. And if we're able to regress that, let's say, for instance, you have an MR elastography of eight. We know that in three years, Based on Alina's work, 40% chance of decompensation, whereas at five, a KPA of five, it's only 20%. So if we're in a clinical trial now able to take that mean KPA from eight, and let's just say for the simplistic purposes, we're really good with our drug and we're able to get it down to five, we just prevented 50% of the cohort from progressing to decompensation. So now you you can show that data to the agency. It's valid data. It's prospectively obtained data. And I think we may actually be able to move the needle quicker, Naeem, on a, on a cirrhotic endpoint than we are maybe on an F2, F3 endpoint. It's just something I want to throw out there. It's provocative and interesting. I don't know if it's got legs or not. I, I'm excited about what that might mean for a cirrhotic endpoint. Speaking of uh, cirrhotic endpoints, I want to ask you guys, I mean, how do you feel about the prevention of development of uh, varices? As you know, this is the endpoint for some of the trials that we are conducting now. You know, you do your endoscopy at baseline and then, you know, you're going to do your endoscopy at the end and look at the percentage of patients that develop varices. I didn't hear anything about this uh, during the meeting. would like to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think it's a tough endpoint to standardize, even amongst experienced gastroenterologists. Some of it can depend on the, the degree of insufflation, whether you call something a, a grade one or a grade two. And sometimes I myself send that I may have variability in how I've graded a varix from a year or two ago to now, and I see different variabilities in grading varices in the same patient within shorter intervals based on different providers. It is subject to some interpretation variability and performance variability as well that can't be readily and equally standardized. Uh, so it's it's still, while it's a hard endpoint, is it can't it can have the same issues that we have with histology, interpretation bias or sampling or or performance bias. I'm just picking up on um, Stephen's point there. We were very encouraged, certainly at the sites that we did with the hepatitis C and the cirrhosis patients that we cured, and watching the improvement 
in liver stiffness quite rapidly after cure. So it does excite me that we can get into trials, certainly in the cirrhosis population. We're going to be using non-invasive markers. We're not going to be biopsying these patients. So you're correct that I would like to see a speeding up of the opportunities for those patients. And what we've also seen, and I suppose it ties in with Naeem's comment, is that as liver softens in in those populations, we saw a reduction in varices and the improvement of risk benefit for those patients. So I suppose there is a combination of both of those outcomes in the cirrhotic population and they're the patients most at need to prevent, reverse, improve or even halt because it improves their outcomes long term. So Manal was quite right. The halting of severe disease progression, I would say, is a really good outcome in the F3 population if they don't... if even if they didn't regress, but if they didn't progress, those benefits for patients emotionally, financially, and socially are just massive. And none of that was mentioned for patient endpoints rather than it was all the focus on clinical. And I think we can have medication that holds a patient stable, but does improve their functionality. It might improve their um, cognition. So there are a lot of other endpoints that I think investigators and companies can now utilize to really look at how effective their medication is, not just on a clinical endpoint, but as a holistic endpoint for patients. And I think we have to be looking at the person as a whole rather than just one point. So I think going back to Stephen and Naeem, I think absolutely the cirrhosis population, these clinical trials with some of these rapid acting drugs could be massively life-changing in the severest form of disease. Let's move on to the final question, which is strategies for clinical drug development for NASH, which feels to me like it lumps together everything we've been talking about and asks, okay, what do you view as good form going forward that you might not have been as um, adherent to or excited about before today? And what were things that you thought might be good form up until today that feel like they might be bad form going forward? I feel like, you know, it's it's the same points we made earlier that we have another endpoint, which is both NASH resolution fibrosis improvement, the fact that cirrhosis should be separated. We talked about some of the issues related to cirrhosis endpoints uh, being clinical at this point, the lack of biomarker strategy that we can rely on for drug approval. Okay, so so let me, let me toss out a couple of questions. If we're now more clearly defined on the importance of risk benefit and the idea that acceptance of your safety profile is going to have to do with your efficacy profile, how confident do you need to be about your efficacy advantage versus other products that are further in development? development to decide to go ahead with what might wind up being a larger phase three trial than you originally had the appetite for. Do you folks see that as a legit question or am I misinterpreting what I'm hearing today? I'll take that and and I'll, I'll say this. So I think my colleagues would agree with me that combination therapy is still ultimately going to be the solution for a significant majority of patients with NASH and fibrosis. And if that is the case, we need to step back and realize that every drug moving forward doesn't have to jump a higher hurdle to cross the finish line because we don't know what synergy looks like necessarily. We have elegant work that Naeem is working on and others looking at some of these early combinations But, and I hate to say this, Naeem, and I I don't mean to offend anybody here, but I don't think that the best combinations have been put forward yet so far. I think 
what we've done is we've, we've done combination by convenience rather than combination based on sound scientific rationale. And as Scott Friedman will always say, gene analysis and looking at which genes are upregulated, downregulated when put together in a Petri dish and then in a preclinical model and taking that forward. I'm not suggesting that we have to do it that way. I do think that, that if you have a drug that is having a positive histopathologic benefit and potentially additive extrahepatic benefits that maybe don't quite meet the hurdle of another drug that's in front of it from a histopathologic perspective does not mean that drug can't be used in combination. And I'm thinking of several of these. Let's just say resmeterone crosses the finish line in 2023, and it may or may not be the first drug for, to treat NASH. Well, we know that it's it's well tolerated and it has some lipid effects in a positive way, but it doesn't mean that it can't improve when combined with another agent, whether injectable or whether it's another oral. So I think I don't want to be short-sighted in that regard. The other thing before I forget about it, that that to your maybe your earlier question, and this is, I would love Kitty's input on this as well, since uh, ifruxifermin, at least in the in the phase 2a trial, where there were liver biopsies performed, seemed to have a very robust histopathologic response in a very short period of time. The comment that the FDA made around 12 to 18 months for a phase 2 trial, looking at histopathology, I think is reflective of what has come before them so far, which are drugs that for all intent and purposes were not incredibly potent, right? So we've seen beta-colic acid come across, we've seen elafibrinor come across and others, but the needle wasn't being moved in a huge direction histopathologically. And, and so the framework, the mindset is one of we need to treat longer to show a positive benefit. But some of these newer drugs coming behind are, are I think, moving the needle in a, in a much quicker fashion. And so do we really need a 12 or 18 month phase 2B histopathology study to inform our phase 3 data? I throw that out there as a question because they kept coming back to that. There was a question about it in the white paper. It was 24 months, two years, and then they kind of backed down to 12 to 18 in the in the presentation. And I, I just thought that was interesting. So, Stephen, I, I completely agree with you. And I, and I do think that the guidance has got to be written in a way that it is sort of appropriate for various different mechanisms of action. And so I think the agency are quite conservative here. And it may be, you know, maybe to Louise's point earlier, looking at more indirect mechanisms that are, are, are more indirect in terms of antifibrotic. And like if we use hepatitis C as a, a surrogate, there, you know, when you remove the virus and you, you allow the liver to then have time to repair, you do get that sort of indirect effect on being antifibrotic, but it does take a long time. And I think there's outcome studies that, you know, really you're talking sort of two to five years to see that indirect method of being antifibrotic. You know, I think, you know, some of the newer generation mechanisms are really looking at being both metabolic. You know, if you can remove the fat, I think it's clear that is affecting your steatosis score and then hopefully your, your NASH resolution. But if you can also then be directly anti-fibrotic, and I think the data we have with the FGF21 and EFA is suggesting this, that we actually are seeing 
direct antifibrotic. And if you can see that, you can see it early. But the combination of those two together seem to be suggesting that we could look at shorter timeframes in terms of these efficacy endpoints. I think that the, the one thing we have to do is we've got to create the data. So we're actively moving that forward. And, you know, it does seem that you can negotiate those timeframes with the agency. And I, I think, you know, the one thing I'm always sort of listening to is I, I think they, they kept saying, be careful about just powering and focused on efficacy and you need to be taking safety into consideration. But if you continue your patients onto long-term follow-ups and you're continuing to generate that safety data, I think that might be something that you can do to kind of sort of alleviate that concern. And it may be that you just provide later data cut at certain points for your safety and combine that with earlier cuts for your efficacy. But there's ways to navigate through that. I think one important point that Joe Turner made when he was asked about what is a clinically meaningful effect size, he said anything better than placebo. I think this is very important. You know, he made the point that they're going to take safety into consideration and then decide. I think this leaves it vague, really, and the FDA can basically do whatever in terms of that risk-benefit ratio. So you can hit the uh, efficacy endpoint, but they say, well, the safety profile doesn't justify it, but how do you do this? I think the way I look at new drugs, I mean, you have your uh, liver endpoints in terms of fibrosis, Nash resolution. You have your metabolic syndrome endpoints in terms of weight loss, effect on A1C, insulin sensitivity, dyslipidemia. And then you have, you know, your adverse events of interest, whether it's um, GI side effects or weight gain, or it depends on the drug. So, you know, you're going to put all of these in one formula and then decide if the risk benefit ratio justifies approval. But it's not very clear, you know, how much weight you're going to put on each of these. Uh, I couldn't agree more with Stephen that, uh, I mean, I think we're moving uh, toward a future that looks like the management of type 2 diabetes. It's not going to be just one drug that fits all. Uh, in diabetes, we have uh, sometimes, you know, better drugs that, uh, you know, will help uh, in terms of efficacy more, but they're not tolerated well. And many diabetic patients still take older drugs that may not have the same cardiovascular benefit that we see with some of the newer drugs. Uh, but I, I can see a similar uh, paradigm for NASH. I agree fully. I, I don't think it's going to be one drug f- fits all. I do agree that we're going to be looking at combination therapies. But one of our limitations from going in that direction is we have not yet defined the abundancy of heterogeneity in these cohorts. We we throw one drug at them, hoping that it'll work, but there are responders and non-responders in every trial. So we haven't phenotyped these patients or genotyped these patients accordingly to be able to optimize any unique therapeutic for an, the most optimal, safe safe and efficacy outcome that we're hoping to achieve. And we, we have learned lessons. There are ample anti-glucose lowering medications on the market, not one size fits all for any of our diabetics. And we've learned lessons from our hepatitis C era, where we initially treated all EPSI like it was the same disease, only to discover that there are unique genotypes. And then we're able to tailor therapies, therapeutic durations and therapeutic approaches according to the genotype of of a virus. And I I think we really need to genotype our own patients to understand what their unique pathogenic drivers for 
their NASH and NASH fibrosis is and tailor therapeutics accordingly. In which case we may, some some patients may receive single therapy and others combination therapies depending on typing our patients accordingly. But overall, I think we are going to be moving to combination therapies. So Manal, that entire comment makes a ton of sense to me on two or three levels. Number one, to get that done in diabetes took multiple classes of drugs that got approved as monotherapies and a lot of years and a fair amount of failure, or at least what I'm going to call marginal success. In that regard, Stephen, I want to go back to your comment about combination therapies. Do we envision that an agent that could not get approved in monotherapy would go all the way through development and be approved as part of a combination therapy? Or do we think that even if it's not a great drug, it's got to get approved in monotherapy to find its way in a combination? Question first to Stephen, but then to the group. That's maybe a billion-dollar question. I mean, you know, what does it take to get a drug into, into clinical practice if it's going to be a combination agent and not a standalone agent, maybe another way to ask the question. And I'm not sure we have that answer because because of the cost involved. I'm not a pharmaceutical company. Maybe Kitty's better to answer that one. But if I were, I guess I would look at my asset and say, well, what's the cost of developing this relative to the opportunity that exists for this drug in the market? And if I did my phase 2B, got histopathology and compared it you know, with other drugs ahead of it, then I would have to think about what are my opportunities to partner with somebody that has an asset that could be used in combination, or if I have an asset in-house, could I combine it with that and move it forward versus moving it forward on its own merits, showing that it's efficacious, but it's being inferior to something that's already on the market. I don't have a good answer there. I, I think it would really depend on a lot of different dynamics, uh, only one of which is is the drug's efficacy. So, Kitty, what do you think? Which, which, which uh, route makes more sense? Well, you know, maybe I'm a little biased and or maybe the eternal optimist, but, you know, I still have hope for monotherapy. And I honestly think that if you could just have one drug, you know, it would obviously be the simplest option. I, I do think it does get compli- complicated when you start combining mechanisms of action. And I think some of the combinations that have been put forward are trying to balance out sort of a liability with one drug with another, which, you know, you, you kind of end up with a net zero, like, you know, you, you maybe have a triglyceride increase in the other drug will decrease it. But overall, these patients have very high levels of triglycerides. And what you don't want to do is just take them back to baseline. You would like to improve overall. But I think that combination therapy has been used in multiple different therapeutic areas. You know, I've, I mean, coming from anti-infectives, whether it be HIV or hep C, where, you know, you've seen very nice partnerships, companies will come together. And I think if you can come up with the right combination of drugs that affect the overall comorbidities of NASH, as well as the NASH itself, I think it would always be something positive to take forward. And I think companies, you know, there's a lot of um, combination studies um, going forward right now where, you know, we are looking at drugs that that, that complement each other. It just is a, a more sort of difficult drug development program. You've got more people in the partnership. For the patient, there, there's a negative. You've got two co-pays and the cost. So, I mean, I think it all depends on whether there's a potential monotherapy that could go forward. That would be my first choice. But if not, you have to then work out, as Stephen says, it's the right combinations that really are overall 
treating the NASH, but also the comorbidities, in my opinion. That sounds like most of the clients I've spoken to in this or other disease categories in terms of preference for monotherapies. A, it's easier to build a case and B, it's easier to get it done. I'm trying right now to think of drug classes I know of where agents that did not get to market as monotherapy became successful as part of a um, blockbuster or significant combination. I'm stretching. I don't have one off the top of my mind. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We are releasing two more conversations from this episode. We will also be releasing post-event interviews with our friends Professor Jorn Schottenberg of the University of Mainz and Jen Fitt, Head of Global Diagnostics, Neil Haas-Main. Each covers different ground than we did in the podcast itself. I recommend both highly. We will release our next episode, Hashtag Real Talk on Clinical Trial Design and Execution, on Thursday, February 12th. I hope you will join us for the interviews with Jorn and Sunil, and then for the next episode as well. Stay safe and see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com, and we will answer on the podcast or the website. Thanks for listening. See you next week on the podcast.